Well, good morning, and thanks for joining us today. Whether you're here in person or whether you're with us online, we're just glad that you are joining us today. And if we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I'm James, one of the pastors on staff here at Faith Covenant Church. And today is week five of our six-part series called Enemies of the Heart, where we're talking about different emotions, different feelings that end up getting lodged in our hearts. And unless we deal with them, they can grow and gain momentum and then destroy our lives and the lives of those around us. And I personally have really been enjoying this series. Uh, so let me encourage you, if you haven't been able to check out all of the sermons, go ahead this week and hop online to 4FCC.org and check out any of the sermons that you might have missed. I think that you'll find them worthwhile to listen to. Now, when I was at my first ministry job, our church was growing, and we decided that we were going to plant a satellite campus on another part of town. And so when we first started building our launch team for that satellite campus, we would do this little outreach event where we would go to the mall that was located in the area of town we were planting, and we would do these little surveys. Uh, and the surveys like, just had some basic questions, and they were there to get people talking to us. We weren't trying to argue with folks or trying to get them to come to Jesus right there on the spot. We were just trying to start conversations and talk a little bit about Jesus and church so that we could listen to folks, see where they were coming from, and then invite them to one of our gatherings. And it was a really cool experience to hear what folks had to say. And one conversation that really stands out in my memory we were at the mall talking to people, and I got into a really great conversation with a gentleman. And as we brought up the subject of church, he told me, he said, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, but I will never set foot in a church because all they want to do is take your money. Now, we were in a mall. I want you to remember that point. And it took every ounce of self-control I had to not point out the irony and the fact that he wasn't willing to set foot in a church because they wanted to take your money while standing in a shopping mall that literally exists to take your money. But regardless of that, he had some real concern and some hurt over his perception of how the church talks about money. And this isn't a rare objection. I mean, in my 10 years of ministry, I've heard this objection over and over and over again. And part of the problem is that some people have been a part of or read about churches that have done terrible things with finances. But on a different level, part of the problem is actually that the Bible's teaching on money and greed and all things related is extremely nuanced and multifaceted. And what ends up happening is that we often hear teaching on one facet in the absence of the other facets. And so instead of seeing the biblical teaching on money as being wise and needfully countercultural, it's easy to catch maybe one or two elements of the Bible's teaching, and by themselves, they end up souring us toward the church. And so I need to give you a warning today. I'm talking about greed which means that we're gonna talk about money. And I am gonna be very narrowly focused on this subject. The Bible has a whole lot more to say about money than what we're covering today. It has a whole lot to say about the merits of saving for your future. Uh, it has a lot to say about 
the, the goodness of providing an inheritance for your family and about the good blessing of working hard and being rewarded for it and about how wonderful it is to enjoy the fruits of our labor. These are all things that we find in the Bible, but they stand alongside the Bible's very clear warnings about the dangers of wealth and the power of greed. So as we dive into our text today, I want you to remember that this passage is incredibly important and not to be taken lightly, but it also shouldn't be taken without realizing that it is only a part of the Bible's teaching on money. But before we we dig in, uh, let's take a second and let's just pray together. Lord, thank you for the chance to worship you and for the chance to look into your word so that it might shape and move our lives in your direction. Please give us ears to hear and minds to understand your word so that it can sink in and transform our hearts. Amen. So today we're focusing on one passage, which is Luke chapter 12, verse 13. If you've got a Bible with you, you can turn there, or if you use your phone, you can uh, swipe there, or if you don't do either of those, it's going to be up on the screen as we go as well. And just a little context for this passage. Jesus has just finished eating dinner with a certain Pharisee, and they got all done eating and talking, and he goes outside the house, and in the streets he finds that a crowd of thousands has gathered and has been waiting for him. So he does what he normally does, and he starts to teach them. And he starts to teach them by telling them about how they should be less afraid of the judgment of man and more afraid of the judgment of God. And it's actually kind of a frightening teaching about uh, the judgment of God and how it matters more than the judgment of man. And he's talking about hell and forgiveness and all of this stuff that's a little frightening. And all of a sudden, as he's teaching, this happens. And this is verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, Tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now, I love this story because this is so cringeworthy. I mean, Jesus, he's just finished giving a kind of scary teaching where he's talking about hell and forgiveness and the judgment of God. And so while he's been giving this really intense teaching, a guy in the crowd has been working his way to the front. And as soon as he hears a break in Jesus' teachings, he yells for everyone to hear, Jesus, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. This is like textbook cringeworthy. And I'm sure most of you have experienced a moment where someone started having a a very personal argument in public that made everyone uncomfortable. Uh, When I worked at Steak and Shake, one of the employees, he was taking his break and he got into an altercation with his girlfriend on the phone. And he said very loudly for everyone to hear, I know you didn't get it from me, so where did you get it from? And he wasn't talking about COVID. Uh, (laughs) That was an incredibly uncomfortable moment where he was loudly airing his dirty laundry. And this moment before Jesus is really similar. This guy, he is airing his dirty laundry in front of everyone. It's a public temper tantrum. And the way that Jesus responds, it actually emphasizes how out of place and embarrassing this whole thing is. This is verse 14. Jesus says, man, who appointed me judge or arbiter between you? So let's pause here and let's ask a question. What would make a man go up in front of a crowd of thousands and very publicly, and let's add embarrassingly, shout out to Jesus that he wants Jesus to demand his brother give him a bigger share of the inheritance? Why would someone do that? 
And there's a simple answer. It's because of greed. Now, a little history is going to help this make more sense. Uh, When the patriarch of a family died in Jesus' time, the majority of the inheritance would go to the oldest son. So, for example, if there were three sons in the family, the firstborn would get half to two-thirds of the inheritance, and the other two would split the rest. The idea being that the firstborn son would need to get enough wealth so that he could carry on the family estate. And the other sons, they could either choose to forge out on their own, or they could contribute their wealth to the family estate as well, and they could all live together based on that estate. Now, I'm going to read into the text a little bit, but I'm guessing that this guy, he was probably a younger brother, and he felt like it wasn't fair that his older brother got so much more. Maybe even he felt like he had worked just as hard, if not harder than his older brother, and he deserved to get more. And I can almost guarantee you that this moment before Jesus was not the initial phase in this conflict. Because with greed, there's always a progression. Greed takes root. You see something you feel like you need or entitled to, and then you try to get it for yourself. This younger brother, he had probably had countless arguments with his older brother about the inheritance. They'd probably called in lawyers The wives had most likely been fighting with each other to to get each other to support their husbands, and they'd probably gone to friends and tried to manipulate people who had influence. I'm betting that all of this stuff was going on with these two brothers before they ever showed up in front of Jesus. Now, this situation, it's not foreign to us, is it? We see this all of the time. Both parents die, and all of a sudden, siblings who had in the past mostly gotten along. They're fighting and bickering about who gets what and who deserves what because after all, I was there for mom when she was sick and where were you? And I can't believe you didn't try and sell their house for more. Don't you know my family is having a hard time financially? This is most likely the kind of stuff that was going on before this man ever shouted his demand at Jesus. So, Why would this guy embarrass himself by going in front of Jesus and asking what he did? Well, simply put, this is greed doing what greed does. Greed makes us want more, and it makes us do unwise, hurtful, and embarrassing things in pursuit of more. Whether it's fighting about our inheritance, hiding your purchases from your spouse, or going into crazy debt to buy a fancier car when the car we have right now works fine, or that crazy cycle of credit card debt that comes with the constant pace of upgrading our phones, TVs, computers, golf clubs, crafting supplies, outdoor gear. Whatever it is, when greed gets a hold of us, it makes us do crazy, dumb, and sometimes hurtful things. And Jesus, he knows this. So when he sees his, this younger brother's greed, he decides that this is the perfect time to give a lesson on the topic. So check out verse 15. He said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Now, this is a statement that most of us would say we agree with. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. But Jesus' warning to watch out and be on guard against greed it could not be more relevant than it is today because literally every part of our society is telling us the message that life does consist 
in the abundance of possessions. I mean, this is the trap of advertising. When you see an advertisement, it's literally trying to convince you that for your life to be everything that you think it should be, you need this thing. That if you want to reach your full potential of beauty, you need this makeup or these jeans or that suit or those glasses. Or if you want to reach your full potential of fitness, you need these workout shorts or that gym membership or this sweet water bottle that matches your fancy gym shoes. Or if you want to be the type of neighbor that you always dreamed about, you need this home improvement or that car or that amazing zero-turn lawn tractor to give your quarter of an acre a perfect trim. Or if you want to be seen as the dopest hipster, then you need those skinny jeans with those boots that zip on the side and that awesome shirt with the birds on it and those thick tortoise shell rimmed glasses. Has anyone been watching our teaching videos for this series? (laughs) Every billboard, every commercial, every magazine advert, Facebook advertisement, Instagram influencer post or commercial that you see on TV or YouTube is telling you the same thing. Life does consist in an abundance of possessions. And this phone, this computer, this dress, this couch, this stove, this gun, this set of clubs, this vacation spot is the possession that'll make you all that you really hope to be. Because you obviously won't ever be able to enjoy the things that you love as much as you will when you're doing it with this thing. Well, Jesus, he lets us in on an incredibly important secret. Advertising, it's lying to you. Every billboard, website, and storefront window, they lie. Life does not consist in the the possessions that you have. But man, are we suckers for that lie. Think about this. Your iPhone has more computing power than the spacecraft that went to the moon, Yet somehow every year Apple is able to convince us that the amazing pocket-sized supercomputer that we currently carry around is no longer good enough. So when the new model comes out, we read everything that we can online about it, wasting a whole bunch of time so that we can, new, we can know how this new iPhone is marginally better than our current phone. And then we stand in line for hours to buy the new and improved version, and we end up spending money that we might not even have to buy this new phone. And why do we do this? Well, James, obviously, it's because it has a better camera. Or obviously, it's because it comes in rose gold, and I really prefer rose gold to white. It just matches my outfits more. No, it's it's because we buy into the lie that life consists in the abundance of possessions. Our culture tells us to upgrade, to increase, to make better, to get more. And it is so easy for us to buy into the lie that my life consists in the abundance of possessions. I love the way Andy Stanley talks about this. He says that if aliens were to come down and observe the United States, they would think that we needed four things to survive. We need food, we need water, we need shelter, and we need shopping. I feel an Eddie Murphy joke coming on here. Greed has a way of sucking us in. Now, before you all tune out because you feel like I'm verbally assaulting you for your um, spending habits, I'm going to be really honest. I do this. Greed is a really easy trap for me to fall into, and sometimes I'll even see an advertisement online, and I'll be like, ah, I need that. I didn't know it until right now, but man, do I need that. Does, does anyone else want to come clean and admit it? Raise your hand. Who's willing to admit that greed and its crazy cousin advertising gets the best of you? Yeah. 
There's, there's a bunch of us, yep. What Jesus says, watch out. And even for those of you who are like, yeah, it's not really a problem for me. That's fine, and it might not be right now. But if you don't guard yourself constantly, it will be. Because greed is tricky, and advertising is powerful. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that your life does consist in the abundance of possessions. But let's pause here. Because this discussion it often goes in the wrong direction. A lot of times when we talk about stuff like this, it, it makes us, first of all, feel guilty for our spending habits. And then it makes us feel like we have to live a monastic and ascetic and a Spartan existence or else we aren't living the way of Jesus. But that's not actually what we find in our passage today. The issue of greed, it's not about how much money we have or how many possessions we have. It's about the heart condition be behind how you use that. And that's exactly what we see in this little story that Jesus tells us. This is starting in verse 16. He told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man, it yielded an abundant harvest. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you've prepared for yourself? This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. So what's going on in Jesus' story? Well, you got a farmer, he gets lucky where his crops yield an incredibly abundant harvest, and he looks out and he thinks to himself, man, what am I going to do? I don't have enough space to store my crops. And then he looks at his barns and he's like, ah, this is what I'll do. I'm going to tear those down. I'm going to build bigger ones so I can store this amazing harvest. And once it's all stored and safe, I'm going to sit back, retire, live it up, and take life easy. And God doesn't really like his response, and he basically says, you moron, tonight you're going to die. And then who gets your stuff? Let's pull this apart. First, let's talk about what the problem is not. The problem is not that he had an abundant crop. After all, this farmer had probably worked hard. He tilled the soil, he planted, he weeded. So some of his harvest is well-earned. But part of the implication here is that this harvest is so abundant that it could only be a gift from God. So receiving this abundant crop and having the wealth from it that's not the problem. The problem is how he responds to this. Pay really close attention to what he says when he realizes how big his harvest is going to be. This is going to be up on the screen. He says, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he says, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. The problem isn't his wealth. The problem isn't even that he stores it up for later. The problem is that when he gets it, he views all the surplus that God has given him as his own to use for his own purposes. What am I going to do with my crops? Well, I'll upgrade my barn so I can fit all this, and then I'm going to take life easy and hang out, sit in my lazy boy. I'll get front row tickets to our sports ball club. Maybe I'll get a boat and take up fishing. Maybe I'm going to get a couple of new and younger wives. 
Regardless, I'm going to store up these crops, I'm going to upgrade my life, and I'm going to use everything I have to make my life exactly what I want it to be for years and years to come. Greed is when we view the wealth that God has given us, no matter how big or how small, as existing solely for me and my own purposes. Let's try and bridge the context here, because most of us, we're not getting rich off of our gardens, unless maybe you're growing something other than cucumbers and tomatoes. (laughs) So how does this translate into the 21st century Western world? Here's what I think it looks like in our context. I think the parallel between the farmer's use of his money in our context is that he had determined to use all of his surplus to upgrade his lifestyle. He didn't want to work anymore. Instead, he wanted to eat, drink, and be merry. He wanted to live a good life. He wanted to use all the wealth that God had given him to upgrade his lifestyle. We do the same thing when we look at our surplus, and we use it primarily for the purpose of upgrading or even maintaining an upgraded lifestyle. Here's what I mean. It is easy for us to load up our credit cards with new phones and tablets and nicer clothes and more trendy furniture from our homes. And then we bend over backwards to finance new cars or to find a way to get a bridge loan so that we can buy that new and nicer house that's only six miles away from our already nice house before we sell our current house. And we end up spending all sorts of money that we don't have on things that, when it comes down to it, are just ways to upgrade our lifestyle. While, at the same time, if someone asked us to donate $500 to something, we would look at what we have in our checking account and say, ah, I really wish I could. But you know what? I just don't have the money right now. It's a good sign that greed might be growing in your life when not having money in your checking account doesn't stop you from upgrading your lifestyle, but it does keep you from being generous to others. Greed is when we view the wealth that God has given us as being all ours for our own sake and purposes. Now again, I gotta be careful here because what I don't want you to hear is that it's bad to upgrade your life or to save for good things or even to store up wealth so that you can have a nice life in the future. Like I said, all sorts of Bible passages that teach that very thing. But what I do want you to hear is that when upgrading our life crowds out the other good purposes that God has for our money, then there's a good chance that we've let an enemy into our hearts. Whenever greed's talked about in church, it's easy for us to automatically go to some sort of extreme and say, I guess according to this, I just need to give up everything, live in a one-room apartment, eat only rice and beans, and give all my money away to those who are less fortunate. That's not actually at all the solution to greed that Jesus gives us. Check out what he says in verse 21. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. There's a super important word in this verse, and it's the word but. You know, one of my seminary professors, he used to always say, always look for buts when you read the Bible. And here, it's so important. This is how it will be for whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich toward God. The issue is not storing up things for yourselves. The issue is when you do so and 
It's crowding out your ability and desire to be rich toward God. But this makes us ask a question. What does it mean to be rich toward God? And for us to understand what Jesus means here, we need to jump ahead a few verses to verse 32, where after giving this teaching on greed, Jesus says, Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide purses for yourself that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Make sure you don't miss the connection here. Jesus has just said that the problem with this farmer was not that he stored up his goods, but rather that he wasn't also rich toward God. And then he says, sell possessions, give to the poor, provide a purse that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He's explaining what it means to be rich toward God. And here's the basic idea. To be rich toward God is to invest our treasures into things that God values, like the poor, the church, the sick, and the underrepresented. There is a consistent ethic that we see in Scripture. God wants us to be generous with the wealth he has given us and use some of it to support the poor, the needy, and the church because God cares a whole lot more about whether you use your money for what he cares about than how you look in those new brand name jeans or how great your new car drives or how the camera on your new phone is a little better than it was on your last one. Greed tells us that our wealth is for us to use however we want. And what Jesus shows us here is that the way to fight greed is to prioritize giving to the things that God cares about. One of the things we've been doing in this series is that as we talk about each of the different enemies of the heart, we've been trying to highlight and suggest a concrete practice that can help us guard our hearts against that specific enemy. And so let me propose this. Set a percentage of your income and give it away to the things that God cares about. And it needs to be a significant percentage, enough that you actually feel it. For some of you, that's like 2%. But for others, you could easily give away 10% of your income and notice no difference in the way that you live your life. Set a percent that you actually notice and give it away to the things God cares about. And then make it a goal to increase that percentage over time. Now, how does this work? How does setting aside a percentage of our income for generosity help us fight greed? Here's something to think about. Greed, it wants you to say yes to everything you could possibly want. It's like that little book, if you give a mouse a cookie, you know, if you give a mouse a cookie, he wants a glass of milk, and then he wants to look in the mirror to see if he has a milk mustache, and then he notices he has some hairs out of place, so he wants some scissors so he can trim it, and on and on and on and on until he's so tired from doing all this stuff that he's thirsty and he asks for another glass of milk, and then he's like, well, you're giving me a glass of milk, can I have another cookie? Greed starts out with one thing, and then it leads to another, and another, and another, and another, and another. You buy a vacation house, now you need a boat to go with it, and some nice life jackets, and then some water skis, 
And since we have this nice vacation house, we need to put some nice furniture in it so when guests come over, they can feel comfortable. And since we're inviting guests over, we should probably build an addition on the vacation house so there's an extra bedroom and a bathroom. And while we're at it, let's buy a couple more four-wheelers so when our guests come, they can do everything with us that we want to do. Greed has a way of asking for more and more and more and more in an endless cycle. But when we decide to give a significant portion of our income away, the tradition in the church for a long time has been 10% or a tithe, what happens is that just out of sheer necessity, we have to start saying no to some of the things that we want so we can say yes to generosity. And what that does is it ends up putting um, limits on how much we can invest on ourselves and upgrading our lives, and that helps us starve out greed and break its endless cycle of more. I love this way of thinking about it because instead of just rejecting all desire to upgrade, it puts healthy and important limits on how we use our wealth. So with that example that I just gave, maybe you do buy that vacation house, but now you're working with a more limited budget on how much you can spend on it so that you're still prioritizing being generous. A second thing to think about here too is that the joy that giving brings us can often overshadow and overwhelm the power of greed. Um, It doesn't always happen this way because a lot of our generosity is given faithfully week after week after week with a vision of the long-term good that it might do. But sometimes when we give and when we get to see the results of our giving, it brings us so much joy, much more joy than we would get if we just used that money on ourselves. And that can be a powerful medicine against the sickness of greed. So here's my encouragement. Decide to give a certain percent of your income away to the things that God values. And then choose to regularly increase that percentage over your lifespan. As we close today, I want to revisit that story that I told at the beginning of the sermon about the guy who wouldn't set foot in the church because he felt like all they wanted to do was take your money. If I could go back in time and have a response for him, it would be this. The church doesn't want to take your money. We want you to give your money because when we choose to give our money, it not only helps us fight off that wretched beast of greed, but it helps us align our priorities with God's. Let's pray together. God, thank you for this message from your word and how it challenges so much of our culture and oftentimes so much of our daily practices. We pray right now that you help it sink into our minds that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. We pray that you help us realize that the wealth that you give us isn't there just for us to use however we want. It's for us to use on ourselves, but also on the things that you value. So Lord, help us set aside a percentage of our income to give to the things that you care about. And in doing that, Lord, help us fight greed and use our wealth with priorities that match yours. We pray this in your name. Amen. 